which is exciting orphan mentality session four there are seven sessions so we're halfway through which is exciting um i hope that it seems like everybody's been getting some stuff from it which is good and that god is you know illuminating things in us and that's the whole point especially with this it's supposed to be very practical so we're learning biblical truths but also really to understand what it means to be sons and daughters because we've that's what we've been bought for right he bought and paid for our adoption as sons and daughters so that we could live free from the orphan mindset and so that we don't have to live like that anymore because it's heavy and it's burdensome and stressful and worrisome and creates anxiety and fear and he freed us from that so we could live in confidence and love as his sons and daughters so um, I pray that these continue to ch challenge our mindsets and that we can really see where we're each functioning in them because I know the Lord shows me all the time and I, I teach the messages but I am being ever transformed and challenged by these same messages um, I think until the day we meet Jesus we're going to be working on being renewed in our mind you know and getting more and more mature more and more like Jesus which is okay and great um, so number four orphans and street kids don't like being told what to do now that's a funny one because most kids in general don't like being told what to do right if you've raised children yourself you tell them to do something they do the opposite but it's even more so with street kids um, even more than your own natural children which is uh, pretty incredible because our own natural children can be very like rebellious or not want to follow instruction <laughs> or uh, not listening um, the reason why orphans don't like to be told what to do and street kids is because they believe that people's intentions are evil towards them because they have been their whole lives uh, people have not had their best intention in mind they're actually if you think about it street kids orphans their parents were supposed to have their best in mind the two people that are supposed to love them the most prostituted them abandoned them, left them on the street, verbally, physically, sexually abused them. So the two people that you should be able to trust, if not anybody else, the two people that you should be able to trust left you high and dry and used and abused you. So what does that mean for them? They have built up a wall. If I can't trust my parents, I can trust nobody you remember the story of the police last week where the police took the kids outside the city and killed them, and that's why the kids would move from place to place. So, hey, I can't trust my parents. Maybe I can trust the police force. Not even them. They're out to kill me. They're actually literally trying to kill me and take me out. So if I can't trust them, I can't trust my parents, I can trust nobody so you telling me what to do, even if you have a good intention, I don't believe you have a good intention. You're actually trying to hurt me as a street kid. That, that's what I'm thinking. They can't trust people. Trust has been broken on some of the deepest levels. Now, usually children growing up in a, in a good home, they would be building trust. They would 
you know, an in innocent child trusts. They just love people. They don't think bad of people. They're just like free, loving. They can't think that way because they haven't been exposed to all the evils of the world. Well, the street children have. And because of this, there's broken trust on such a deep level that they think I can trust no one. Now, they might step into something where they're saying, I'm going to try, but they'll always push back when it gets too close. They believe people want to use them and control them. That's another reason why. They don't like being told what to do. They think you have their worst intentions. They can't trust, and they think they're you're just trying to control them and use them for their own gain. Again, that's what they're used to. So you telling me what to do is not for my benefit. I think it's for your benefit, and because of that, I'm pushing back. Okay, so I'm going to give some examples of this to help us understand it, maybe see why they would do that more. In Brazil, kids would run away from their homes. I met so many street kids that had run away from their homes because they were being prostituted by their families, little girls. Um, we would meet these girls on the street and, and little boys on the street, and they were being very, very harshly abused in their homes, physically, sexually, mentally, in all cases. So they run from home. But what do they do when they get on the streets? They go and join a gang that was extremely common because gang means family and protection, oddly enough. A gang, th the reason why kids join gangs is because gangs have this, you know, exterior of we're community, you got my back, I got your back type relationship, which we're all longing for community. These kids are looking for family. They're looking for that relationship, right, that protection, that group of people. And so they go to these gangs. But what happens when a, ki when a child is about nine years old or younger and they're joining a gang, they become the drug runner. Why are they the drug? Why would they send a little kid to be the drug runner, to go get the money and back? Because if they get killed, they're of no value to the gang. They're too young to have any value yet sad, sickening. They have no value yet, so they say, why don't you go off because if something goes wrong, you'll be the one that has the consequences and we don't really need you. You're not that important to us. Now, the kid doesn't know that that's happening, though I think they probably do know that they're being used. So these children would be the tr drug runners and what they'd be trying as best as they could to get to a place of authority so they're not the used anyone, used one anymore, but they're the one who's using. Because if I'm being controlled, any street child orphan does not want to be controlled because it means abuse is coming. It means I'm unsafe, I'm unprotected, they're going to get me. So I'm gonna, I want to move from this place of being controlled to being in control. And they're going to do everything they can to mount that ladder as quickly as possible, whether that be beating up other people, whether that be killing other children even. That sounds harsh, but that happens. That's, that's a reality on the streets. Because they can't be controlled, they need to control. I'm too afraid of this place. Does that make sense? So I've got to build my way to being in control. I don't care what I have to do to get there. Because being controlled is unsafe. They're going to use me. Another example is I was at the orphanage in Haiti, 
remember I was a uh, director there of an orphanage of 29 children, 10 Haitian staff. And I had some friends coming in and out, serving with me a week here, a couple weeks there. And you, most of you have met my brother Hudson. He came and he stayed a month with me there, which was awesome. And every morning we would go up into the home and talk to the kids, do dream interpretations, see if God was speaking anything, things like that. Well, after that first meeting of the day, my brother called me over to talk to me about something. I can't even remember what it is. We walked off to the side, and I saw over by the building some of the older girls, three of the older girls, Marianne being one of them, about 14 years old, right? So three girls, 14, 15 years old. And they were all sitting us watching. But they were, like, we were over here. They were over by, like, the front door that far. So not in earshot. They can't hear anything. So Hudson talks to me about something about the schedule of the day or something to that nature. And we go about the day. The conversation was probably 30 seconds. As the day is progressing, I'm noticing these girls are having a major attitude towards me. Now, they're kids. Kids can have attitudes. You know, I don't know. Maybe they're just having a bad day. So I'm just trying, like, well, maybe they're just something happened, whatever. I don't know. But then it started getting worse, and they're giving me, me more of an attitude directly. So I finally get the chance. I go up to them and say, hey, what's going on? Why do you have an attitude? And they're all looking at each other, arms crossed. And they're like, we know what you and Hudson were talking about. This is a conversation in Creole. And so I said, oh, you do. Now, Hudson doesn't speak Creole, so I was speaking to him in English. And they said, oh, we know what you were talking about. I said, you do? What were we talking about? Well, I saw you. I said, no, I said, oh, you speak English? And they go, well, no, but we understand a little. And I'm like, okay, well, what did you hear us saying? Well, we saw you say our names, and we just know that you were talking bad about us and that you hate us. Why do you have to talk bad about us to other people? And I'm, I'm standing there amazed now. I can't believe this. What? You, you saw us from 100 feet away, a couple hundred feet away. You saw me mouth your name, or you think that I did, and because of that, I was speaking badly about you, and now you're hurt and offended. So what I did, I explained to them, no, this is what Hudson and I were talking about. Why would you think I would talk badly about you? I love you. I'm here every day first from the first moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. I am here with you. I'm loving you. I'm telling you how much I love you. I'm doing all these things for you. Why would I talk bad about you? That makes zero sense. But the fact was, they thought my intentions toward them were not good. It was their orphan mindset. Nobody could actually really love me. So when I see this happening, I immediately, in my insecurity, is saying, it must be about me. That's how they were feeling. It must be about me. Wesley's leaving. She hates us. She's angry with us. Why? Because they've known that their whole life, their parents did talk bad about them. Their relatives did. The people on the street left them high and dry. So it's an, it, it's an experience they've had so many times. So when they see something happen, they're like, this must be the same thing, and I've got to protect myself before I get hurt. So I'm going to protect myself by anger. 
I'm going to protect myself by pretending I don't care or being angry at Wesley. So they think the worst of your intentions. And then they also use manipulation. Manipulation's a major thing that street kids use all the time. I don't think they realize they're using it half the time. It's a natural thing that they've learned because they've had to learn to protect themselves again. Um, but it's become such a habit in them that they manipulate. So, for instance, I am their favorite person in the entire world. I'll come in, oh, mom, I love you, mom. You're the best mom in the world. And they call me mom, 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 mom because they want to get into my heart and they know that they can. So they love, oh, I love you. You're the best. You do everything for us. Oh, we love you, mom. And then in the afternoon, boys, I need you to all, I want you you three to do the dishes. I need you four to go in and clean the cafeteria. I want it completely swept through, blah, 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 blah. And then instantly it's, what? Why us? You always ask us to do it. That's a girl's job. The girls should be cleaning. The girls should be cleaning the cafeteria. We like Rennell better. Where's Rennell? Rennell wouldn't make us do this. We love Rennell. We hate you. So from morning, in the morning, it's, I love you, Mom. Mom, you're the best. We love you. We couldn't live without you. Then the afternoon, when I tell them I need them to do something that they don't want to do, immediately I'm the enemy. <laughs> and they hate me, and they want so-and-so. Now, this is a manipulation tactic. They're trying to do that to make me change. Because if I'm moved by their feelings toward me, if my security comes from their love, then the minute they say they hate me, I'll be like, oh, you're right, never mind. I'll ask the girls to do it. Like, like me more than Rennell. I can't stand the thought of you liking Rennell more than me, right? If I was secure in their love, that's what I would do. I would change. I'd be like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I hurt you. Come here. Well, that's not real love. That's me being manipulated by them. Real love is saying, okay, you can say you love Rennell more. I know you love me more. No. <laughs> you can say you love Rennell more, but I'm sorry, you still need to do the dishes. This is helping you become a, a good human being <laughs> who knows how to do chores and can help around the house. You know, we're creating a family. Everybody has their part to play. Because I told them to do something, they immediately try to use it against me to try to change my decision that I've made. That's manipulation. That's a street kid orphan mentality to protect because they don't want to do it. There's this seed of rebellion because what I'm asking them to do, they don't want to do it. So the part of that's just natural rebellion that we all have because of sin. And a big part of it for them is because no one's had their best intention in mind. So why would they think that you do? You know, you that takes a long time to build that trust. Why would they think that you do? So how does this look like in the church? How do we function in these orphan mentali mentalities ourselves? Um, when I joined Street Life, so again, all my examples, because I'm the biggest orphan out there, but um, I was at Street Life, and I had just been there. It was in the first year that I had been there. And I was super crazy, like 18 years old. Wesley was very wild, very immature. But, you know, I love Jesus. I was just immature. 
So I carried around a Bible in my back pocket. I was constantly pulling it out, quoting scripture all day. I always wanted to be praying. People would ask me to go shopping with them, and I'd say, no, I need to pray. And I really loved to pray. It wasn't like I was trying to be religious, but it caused a lot of tension because people wanted to do normal things. I was not normal, and I wasn't going to just go out and go shopping. I hated shopping. I still do. It's not my favorite thing to do. Yeah, Tommy's thankful for this. Um, but so when I would walk into a room in those first six months to a year that I was there, it always seemed I would walk into the room. I remember there's a lot of stairs in the house. I remember running down the stairs to the basement and two people, the other two staff were there and they'd immediately stop talking as soon as I walked into the room. And me and my insecurity was like, they're talking about me. I walked into the room. They stopped talking. Definitely about me. Oh, did I know that? No, I didn't hear what they were talking about. I don't know that they were talking about me. What it seemed like through my lens of insecurity was that they were talking about me because I thought they hated me because I was different. Because I didn't like to do the same things they did. So I... That was my problem. That wasn't their problem. I was so insecure. I remember going home. Many of you have met Josiah, too. I went home. Josiah was one of my closest friends 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I remember a bunch of us went out, and I cried. And I said, Josiah, they hate me. Nobody likes me. I want to come home. Whenever I walk into a room, everyone gets quiet. They're talking about me because they don't like me. And he gave some probably really good advice, like, you got to love them anyway, Wes. Don't make this about you. It's okay. You'll be fine. Probably something like that because he was good like that. But that was the type my orphan mentality. I couldn't think that someone might be talking about something else or about, yeah, personal issues they didn't want to hear from me about. Like, they didn't want me to hear about. It had to have been they're talking about me. And I'm all of a sudden feeling like I could go cry. Now, when the Lord showed me this, I saw that my perception of other people was out of my own insecurity. So I started to work on it. But it was really hard. And there was one time that I came home. This was just a few years ago. I had already started teaching this message. And I come home, and I, was, I had come home from Brazil, and I was just about to leave to Haiti again. And I'm running up the stairs. Again, another situation with stairs. I'm running up the stairs in my mom's house, and I go into the kitchen, and my sister's on the phone, and I notice that she immediately changes the subject of what she was talking about. And I'm like, she was talking about me. And I immediately got so overwhelmed, I went to my room and started bawling. And I'm like, no one in my family likes me, and they're talking bad about me, and I'm an outcast because I'm different. And I, I struggled with things like that, you know, feeling insecure even in my family. We're a tight-knit family, but I always felt insecure about where I stood, that people didn't really like me for who I am, and which is not true. It was my perception. So come to find out, I, I go up to my room, I start crying, I'm talking to the Lord, the Lord reminds me of this teaching, and I think, oh Lord, you're right, I didn't know what they were talking about, I didn't hear it, I'm going to try to think the best, I'm going to think the best of the situation, maybe they were talking about something else, 
but they didn't want me to hear about, fine. So two days later, this happens to be in February, which is my birthday month, they throw me this major surprise party with 100 plus people that show up from all over, and I had zero clue, zero idea that conversation she was having was about the party. So not only wasn't it that she was talking bad about me, but she was actually planning something because she loved me and wanted to celebrate my birth. And because of my insecurity, I ran to my room and started bawling. Wasted tears. They're never wasted because God takes them. He loves my tears. But you know what I mean. If I had controlled my emotions at that point, that wouldn't have happened. I could have seen that it wasn't about that. When I got sick, you remember I've shared about chikungunya. I, I went back to street life. I was in bed for seven months in a wheelchair, excruciating pain. Before I was bedridden, I was at street life, and they had known I was coming back for seven or nine months and that it was for me to get rest and some healing because a lot had happened in Haiti, and I needed to process through stuff. So my friend Harvest, she was touring with Third Day, and she, someone called me and asked if I could come and be a chorus person for the concert. And I thought, that is so cool. I get to see my friend, and I get to sing in a Third Day concert. Man, this is awesome. Again, my birthday month. So I'm like, maybe David will let it be a birthday present. So I go and talk to David at Street Life, and I say, hey, and at this point, I'm having struggle. I'm not in a wheelchair yet, but I'm struggling walking. I'm in a lot of pain. But I go to him and I say, David, this opportunity has come up. I would love to go and do this. It's like a birthday present from Jesus. I believe Jesus is, you know, so I use Jesus too because I want to try to convince him more. Jesus gave me this present. And what do you think? And he goes, uh, no. And I'm like, what? excuse me, come again? Uh, what do you mean, no? And he goes, you told me, Wes, you told me you came here to rest from ministry and to get healing. Going and singing at a third-day concert is not really rest. It's doing. It's more doing. And I was so mad. I didn't say anything because I'd uh, been a little more mature at that point, but I went to my room. Of course, I cried again, and I'm like, Lord... I wanted to go so bad. I wanted to see Harvest. I wanted to do this concert. I had such a hard time hearing him say no. He was telling me what to do, and I didn't like it. I wanted to make the decisions for my own life. Now, I think I was thinking about this morning, Jay being in the military or um, the Navy, Coast, Coast Guard, you have to be submitted to instructions. When someone tells you to do something, you do them. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree. You have to do it. You've committed to the Coast Guard, so you're, you're doing it. Now, I'm sure that's hard at times. That's any branch of the military. They expect you to agree, like to just do whatever they're telling you to do at any moment. But for some reason, in the church as a family, where it should be that our law is of love, that we have the utmost respect and honor for one another, that we would submit to one another in love, 
for some reason, our rebellious side comes out a lot more where we say, who are you to tell me anything? It's kind of connected to correction and discipline, but it's much different in that. Correction and discipline, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, is to point out something in your life, hey, maybe you need to work on this, right? So it's something you're already doing, and they're bringing attention to it to say, hey, let's mature. Like, you can become more like Jesus, and this is, why don't you look at this in your life? We're telling you what to do. It doesn't have to do with correction or discipline. Like I told the boys to go clean the dishes. I'm just telling them to go clean the dishes because they need to be helping around the house. They need to be doing what they need to be doing. It had nothing to do with their correcting them or disciplining them. I was just telling them what to do because they need to do it. Um, But we have a really hard time with this because we don't think the best of other people's intentions. But when we submit to that, like I submitted to David. Was it hard? Yeah. But you know what happened afterwards? Later on, when I had left Street Life, I was full-blown chikungunya in a wheelchair. I had to be brought to Canada because my mom was away. I had to be taken care of 100% of the time, fed, carried, blah, 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 all of that. So I went to stay with my brother in Canada. Guess who was touring? Harvest with third day in Canada, and my brother was going. He wheeled me in. I didn't get to sing, but I got to spend time with her, which was what I really wanted in the first place. I just wanted to see my friend that I hadn't seen. So God gave me the present anyway because I chose to submit myself. Are those moments easy? They're not easy. They're hard because they challenge rebellion in us. They challenge independence. I want to be independent. I want to be my own person. I don't want you to tell me what to do. When we humble ourselves and submit, something's formed in us. It really is. And I I just keep looking at Jay because I know Jay has probably experienced it to a greater degree than any of us because of his life experience. But letting that carry over within the church Not seeing that when someone tells me something to do or asks me to do something, that it's an evil intention or they're trying to use me. Because I think in the church we think they're trying to use me. And maybe because there has been some of that in the past. Maybe in your church church experience you felt used and abused. That could happen. But when we're doing things as unto the Lord, our doing is not for people, right? Like chapter 1, session 1. Our doing is for the Lord. Because he loves us, we overflow with the doing, right? Or I'm doing it just for his eyes alone, not to be seen by people. So when I'm asked to clean the bathroom, I'm asked to do something, I'm like, okay, I'll do it as unto the Lord. And this can be used in my intimacy bank with him where it's just between me and him. And I'm doing it for his eyes alone. This was another really intense situation. Um, a f- couple friends of mine, they were not getting along at all. They were, not, they were both friends of mine, not friends with each other, really. And they had a really hard time with each other, very opposite-type personalities. We all went to church together. And one day, one friend was walking into church, and she was going to go sit where she normally sits. So she's walking in couple hundred people in the church 
and she sees that the girl she doesn't get along with is kind of like in her path to her seat. But she's like, you know what? I'm going to be try to be mature. And I'm going to just walk by her, say hi, and go sit down. She walks by her and she says, hi, how are you? And the girl just looks at her and looks away, doesn't say anything, and then walks away. Now, can you imagine? So she's like, okay, well, what was that about me? Okay, I don't know. So she goes to the bathroom. The girl's in the bathroom. So she's like, oh, great. Let me try again. Let me believe the best, right? Trying to apply this message. So she goes to the girl and she goes, hey, I don't know if you saw. I said hi to you before in the sanctuary. You didn't say hi. I don't know if you saw me, heard me. And the girl just looks at her and she's like, no, I heard you. But I have the gift of discernment and I know you're being fake and I don't want to engage with fake. So that's why I didn't respond. And my fr the other girl was like, okay. And then she told me about it afterwards. She's like, what the heck? I don't even know what to do with that. And this is this. This is the orphan mentality and how it looks in the church. The one that says, I have the gift of discernment, but what are they discerning? Everyone's evil intentions all the time. That's not biblical. The gift of discernment isn't even to discern the intentions of someone's heart. The Bible clearly says that God alone knows the intentions of the heart. I don't know the intentions of Marie's heart. I don't know the intentions of Stephen's heart or his motivations. God alone sees that and judges it. I'm pretty sure God's a better judge than I am. The gift of discernment, when it's talked about in the Bible, talks about the discerning between spirits, discerning between right and wrong. Those are all, uh, discerning between right and wrong is external. You can discern, was that right or wrong, right? That's discernment. Discerning between spirits, it says the distinguishing of spirits. That's another part of the gift of discernment. It's never to discern, I know your intention was this, the minute someone says that to you, I'm thinking, or says that to me, I'm thinking, well, you're functioning in the orphan mentality. You've missed it. Because the Lord does not talk that way. He doesn't tell me that. I know this is what you're doing inside. No, you don't. I'm sorry. The Lord does know, and he might convict me of it. I'm sure he will, because he's a good father. If I have bad intention, bad motivation, he's going to expose that. He will bring it to light. He will bring it to light. But the fact is, that's, we think the worst of people. So I walk into a, a church service, and I say hi to Marie, and she doesn't say hi back to me. Or Marie walks in, and she walks right by me and doesn't say hi to me. I could immediately think, why didn't Marie, Marie doesn't like me. She hates me. There must be something wrong. She walked right by me. She never walks by me. She always says hi. So instead of thinking, oh, maybe Marie is having a bad day, and she just walked in and sat down because she's just having a bad day, or if I thought maybe she just didn't notice me. I mean, we're too small of a church for her not to notice me, but... I could think the best. You see what I'm saying? I could try to think the best. Maybe she's dealing with something. Maybe she's having a hard day. I'm not going to take it personal because I don't know. I'm not going to immediately take it on and be offended because I don't know. 
I don't know what's happening with Marie. So I can try to approach her again. Instead of being offended that she didn't come to me and say hi, I'm going to go to her and say, hey, Marie, how are you? It's so good to see you. Are you doing all right? And she might be like, yeah, I'm great. And I'd be like, okay, well, she probably just didn't see me then. You know, I don't have to make some big deal about it, become insecure and make it all about me because that's what we're doing. I'm insecure of what other people are thinking. I can't trust that anyone has my good intention in mind. They're just thinking bad about me. They hate me. They don't like me. This is not what <laughs> this is not what it looks like to be a son or daughter where we're so moved by what we see. We're offended easily. That's that's a orphan mentality or where we try to control people so that we're not controlled. This could also look like fighting for a leadership position in the church because I don't want to be led. I want to try to become a leader. So I don't have to be the one told what to do. I want to try to be the one telling people what to do because that seems like a better position. Right? That could that's what this orphan mentality could look like. We're just like the kids in the gangs, right? Trying to fight so that they're not controlled. I want to be the controller. So we fight in the church for a position of leadership because in our minds we think if I'm in that position, I get authority and then I'm not going to be the focus anymore and I get to tell people what they're doing wrong, which is not even real leadership, right? That's not what leadership's about. Um, you missed the mark, but that's what we go for. That's what we fight for because we don't want to be told what to do. We want to tell what to do, so we fight for position where I can do that. Does that make sense? Do you see why? Because we don't want people looking at us. We'll fight to get to the higher place so that we can point, so that we can do that. So... 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, please. Yeah, discerning between right and wrong, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Yeah, exactly. Very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is going to hurt. Exactly. It's just understanding, seeing, discerning. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is in the Amplified Version because it expounds on what some of the words mean in the uh, Greek. So 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Now we know the chapter of 13 in 1 Corinthians is about love. It says love is patient, love is kind, it is gentle it's not boastful it goes on to say what love is well in verse 7 it says love bears up under anything and everything that comes is ever ready to believe the best of every person is ever ready to believe the best of every person so going back to session number one Listening to what the Lord loves about us, he sees the best in us. Does he not see all our junk? He sure does. I remember at one point in my life, I'm walking with the Lord, and I'm thinking, all of a sudden he exposed this place in my heart where I had so much bitterness for my earthly dad, 
because of some stuff, and I had thought I had forgiven him. You know, I was like 22 years old at the time, and I had been through 12 years of forgiving him, talking to him. So I thought I had really dealt with it, and he showed me a root that was in me. And I remember thinking, Lord, you've seen this here all along. How patient have you been with me? You saw that there was this deep root since I was 10 years old. And yet you so patiently and kindly walked me through this long process to the point of 22 years old saying, now I'm ready to face the root. He was peeling layers, right? This is the onion analogy. He's peeling, peeling, peeling layers, one after the other to get lower and lower. He's so patient. God, and he loved me through it all. He loved me so deeply through it all and told me things he loved about me, though he saw this major root of bitterness in me. Wow, what a loving God. When we realize how gracious God has been towards us and loving, we will begin to naturally express that to others. When we're filled with his love, when, we, when we're listening daily, what does he love about me? And he's telling you all these things. It starts to change the way you think about other people. Even if outwardly they are a mess. You're saying, I can see something in there. I'm going to see the way that God sees. He loves. He loves and he's patient in his love towards us. He's gentle. He's gracious in, our lo in his love towards us. Now, I admit, I have a really hard time. I can believe the best about people, but I s I'm not as patient. <laughs> He's working on that with me. I want to see things happening, right? I want to see the change happening. It's hard. He's so patient. God, how are you so patient with us? We need help. I need help. I need help with being gentle. I need help with being kind and gracious because I'm just like, blah. Bam, here you go, you know, and it's not like him, and I want to become more like him. He does speak the truth in love. He does speak things directly, but he's so patient in the process. He's so kind, and he's seeing, he's looking and seeing the good in us. This is not, again, I think something I was thinking today that needs to be made clear is that to love in this way and to see the best in people doesn't necessarily mean that you let them use and abuse you either, right? So Eric was sharing the last week about this relationship he was in that was not healthy. You c he could still see the best in that person and say, I need to walk away, right? Walking away does not say, I don't see the best in you. Walking away saying, I can't do that right now because it's not good for me. It's not helping me. I see the best in you. God can do something awesome in you, but I need to separate. Does that make sense? It's not saying, oh, yeah, just stick with the person because you got to see the best. No, that's not always the case. We can see the best and sometimes say, nope, someone else needs to help. God's going to send someone else to this person because I'm too connected to do that, especially in relationship-type situations. 
And we're going to get to relationships, how orphan mentality functions in relationships, and that will kind of shed light on that. But I, I did want to clarify that. To see the best in somebody does not mean that I have to choose to be the one to bring the best out of that person always. We have a calling to do that as much as we can. God will tell us to do, invest in people's lives, and we have to commit to doing that. But it doesn't mean that all the time, I, I think that's rooted in something else where we find our value in what we're doing with other people. But again, that's another, yeah, I, there it's another section. So hold that thought. And if you have questions, hold that thought. That is section number six. So we have one more next week, and then the next week we'll talk about relationships. But we do need to learn to see the best in people. Now, it could be the example, this is a funny one, of someone driving, right? And you're driving your car, and there are other terrible drivers on. So you're driving on the highway, and someone's trying to merge onto the highway. And they don't merge. They don't go fast. They don't speed up. They don't turn... And immediately you're like, what the heck is wrong with you? Who taught you to drive? Did you ever go to driving school? Blah, 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 blah. You could either be like that or you could say, maybe they're a new driver. Maybe they're getting used to getting on the highway. Maybe, you know, you start to think the best of the intentions of that person. Maybe they're an older person who shouldn't be driving anymore but still are. And because they're having a hard time, transitioning you start to think the best of the people right does that make sense we need to start changing the way that we see things and if we're seeing people through that lens it means we're insecure if we're seeing things in a sense where everything that they do is to attack me to hurt me to use me to abuse me that's not necessarily their problem most likely, not always, but most likely it has to do with us and our insecurity. We need to be secured in the love of God, the love of the Father, where we see the best in people. We see the best, we call out the best, we say what we see and encourage and build up. Love is ever ready to believe the best of every person. It bears up under anything. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances. It never loses hope, no matter the circumstance. That's the love of God. And it endures everything without weakening. This is the love of God. And we need to be being filled with that love. I keep thinking of this example. I don't usually use it, but because it keeps coming to mind, I'm going to share it to end today. But my sister Lydia, and I don't think she would mind me sharing this. It's going to be on the Internet soon. So um, she has a lot of people come into her house. She helps people walk through addiction. She's had people, a lot of people who have been addicted to heroin come into her house, and they get free. Now, she has very clear structure and boundaries in her house. When you come in, and people come straight off the street into her house, it's amazing. And there's always at least 15 people living at her home. And she doesn't have that big a home. Anyway, 
So she has them come in, but there's a very clear structure. You're not allowed to bring your drugs in. You're not allowed, you know, she has rules for the home. You have to help with these things, da 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 And they have a choice. They can either come in and say, yes, I'm ready for that process. I want to get free. Here I am. I'm going to do it. Or they can say, no, thanks. It's too much for me. I'm back because I want to do my own thing. It's their choice. She's not trying to convince them one thing or the other. A lot of people come in and they say yes because they're desperate. It's not just someone struggling. These people are desperate for help. And they come in and say, yes, I'll do anything. Okay, well, here, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to help you make goals. We're going to help you start to move forward in your life, become who God destined you to be. Like, this is exciting, blah, blah, blah. Well, two, three months into it, the rubber hits the road and things get really tough. And it's like, um, I don't know if I want you telling me that I need to clean the bathroom today. I don't know if I want you telling me that I can't go out, that I can't have my cell phone, that I can't do this, that I can't do that. Because I don't know that your intentions are good towards me. Now that blows my mind, right? You, well, they've opened their home. You can eat any of their food. You don't have to pay to live there. You're just being in the family. Why would you think they don't have a good intention? That makes zero sense from what's, what's actually happening. They've welcomed you in with their family and said, eat our food, drink our drinks, don't have to pay, but we're going to help you to change. But because of a buildup of being used and abused, they say, hmm, few months in, hmm, are you saying I can't do that because you have my best in mind? Or are you saying that I can't do that because you're uh, about to try to get something from me? And those feelings come up because they've been used and abused, right? So we have to get into this place of not thinking the worst of people, but saying, hey, if David's telling me I can't go sing with Harvest, he has my best intention in mind. He actually loves me. And David knows this well. We laugh about it now, but I didn't like him. I, th I did not know he loved me. And I had a really hard time knowing that he loved me. I think it was five years into it, and he said to me one day, Wesley, do you still not know and believe that I love you? And I'm like, you know what? I think I still struggle because of my insecurity, because I still think that you're trying to tell me no to use me. Blows my mind, right? And now I'm at a place where I know, and I'm so thankful for everything they did. I'm so thankful he told me no to Harvest Concert because I needed to be reminded of my purpose for going there, to rest and to receive, not to give out because I was a giver. I just gave, gave, served, 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 did, 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 did. And I had told them, keep me accountable. And so he was doing the very thing I'd asked him to do, to keep me accountable. That's love. That's love protecting me, w even when I didn't see it, and even when I didn't believe it. Sometimes it takes afterwards. You know, you see it afterwards. And so, but we have to learn to, in the moment, say, okay, this doesn't feel nice. I don't know that they're trying to do the best for me, but I'm going to choose to believe 
that they're trying to help me out. I'm going to choose to believe the best. So the homework for this week is to examine, again, where you might have a hard time being told what to do. That could be in your own household. (laughs) Um, Or where you might have bad intentions of people or you take things personally or you view things always through this lens of mm, glass half empty. Like it's always probably the worst case scenario. That's not love. That's not how love sees. So if we're acting that way, we're not filled with love. So think about it. Think about your life. Jay Jay immediately said, "Uh uh-oh. And so I think he already knows some places for him. (laughs) You know, and I think I know places for me. I already know places for me that I'm working on. God brings him up quickly, and it's great, right? He loves us. He's trying to make us mature sons and daughters. These are good things. They're not bad things. They're good so that we can walk into a room, nobody says hi to us, and we're like, yeah, Jesus loves me. I'm all good. I don't, I don't need people to say hi to me. In fact, I'm going to be the one that says hi to everyone because I'm overflowing with love because God tells me every day how much he loves me. And so I'm going to be like, hey, hey, how are you? I've had, lastly, this I know I keep going, but I just have one more. I had people come up to me and say, I hated you for so long. And I want to ask your forgiveness. I'm like, well, this is weird. <laughs> like, I didn't know you hated me. So until now, when you just told me, <laughs> I forgive you, I guess. But now this feels weird. But the reason why is because they thought that I ignored them. They thought that I didn't like them. Because sometimes when I stare off into the space and I'm thinking, I have an evil look on my face. And if people get in line of that evil view, they think I'm looking at them. Right? Bad intention. So they're like, Wesley doesn't like me. And I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry. Like, I just, I'm going to have to work on my resting face. That's like smiley or something. I don't know. It's how, yeah, like, that might be freak some other people out if I'm like. Mm. But that's, that's the thing. I've had people come to me to say that. And I've thought, wow, I didn't know that you felt that way. It was not my intention to make you feel that way in any way. So now I'm like extra protective. I don't want to put anything on other people because I know I've had things put on me. And I've thought, "Mm, I want to believe the best. So let's believe the best. Father, I pray that you would show us where the areas in our life where we don't like being told what to do, where we think the worst of people's intentions, where we believe we hate the being out of control where we feel like other people are controller c- controlling us. We don't ha- we have a hard time giving up control because we want to be in control. God, help us to break free from that, to be able to trust you. Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the water. It will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in a year of doubt, drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Father, we want to trust you and be at rest and that you are in control and we can rest in that and be overflowing buckets of love to all that are around us, unoffendable. Help us, teach us, remind us of this as we go throughout this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.